Welcome to another episode of Afikra Matbakh. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Haya Bshuti, the founder of Haya's Kitchen. Haya is Palestinian by blood, Jordan by national, Jordanian by nationality, with a bit of Greek, Emirati, and Egyptian by residency, and is a incredible chef. And I had the pleasure of being at one of her sofras in Dubai. It is an absolute pleasure to invite you and welcome you to Afikra's Matbakh. Amazing. Hi. Well, honestly, I've been uh, an avid follower of Afikra for a long time, and I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to feed you. I love feeding people. Um, so it was kind of a good uh, prequel to this uh, to this chat. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Whenever anyone asks me, uh, Mikey, do you like cooking? I always respond by saying, I like feeding. I don't really <laughs> like cooking. Um, yeah. I don't have a problem with it, but I'm largely driven by feeding. Uh, And that came across with you. I mean, I generally like saw you. I was like, oh, that's where the pleasure comes from. Has it always been true? It's true. I mean, look, I I was um, blessed to to kind of have grown up in a setting where uh, my grandmother's regardless of the number of people that were coming into the space, they always had this like energy and excitement about feeding people. So, and growing up, like, so my family, my grandparents, uh, everyone was in Jordan. And so there was this community feel of your, you have an open door policy. Any neighbor can kind of just drop in at any moment for a cup of coffee, a cup of sugar, whatever the case is. And you always had to be ready. They always had this kind of readiness to them. And no, I'm ready to feed people. And uh, I've, I always loved that feeling of it. I always loved seeing how readily open they were to feeding people that I feel that I inherited that through them, basically. What is the food like? You know, like, it's so funny. People, uh, they're like, um, Lebanese food gets a lot of playtime and sort of a lot of a love Palestinian food. You know, you, you hear about Syrian food. You don't hear about like, quote, unquote, Jordanian food. What is the, I mean, you grew up in Jordan. What do you feel like is the best way to describe what Jordanian food tastes like? Well, I actually grew up all around. Um, So I actually lived in Jordan for only a couple of years, Um, but I lived in the UAE. I was born in Greece. Uh, I lived in Egypt. So I feel like I'm partially, I partially identify as Egyptian to some point. Um, Jordanian food, I think is more, um, Bedouin inspired. Um, so it's, I think that there's a lot of crossover between Palestinian and Jordanian food because a lot of Palestinians obviously, um, found their homes in Jordan. So we share a lot of similarities, but I know that there's this ongoing debate about mensaf, but like mensaf is probably the most identified dish as it being completely Jordanian. Um, And it goes back to like the Bedouin culture and the process of preserving um, dairy without having a fridge. And so it it kind of links back to the way of life, not necessarily um, that people are like, we're going to claim this as like our own dish, you know. Um, But for me, I think um, through Haya's Kitchen, I mean, obviously people do ask me to do mansaf, but I do focus on my Palestinian heritage and my Palestinian roots and um, the food that, I mean, I grew up with, I think we all share very similar flavors across the Levant, but, uh, here in Dubai specifically, I feel like there's more recognition for Lebanese food or the grills, mashawi, mezze style of food. 
And um, so it's it's more of a kind of creating awareness for the fact that we don't live every day with mashawi and hummus, but we actually have like a lot of diversity in our food. And there's a beautiful way of um, seeing the seasonality of food in Palestinian culture and uh, in our food. And um, because we live in Dubai, we kind of forget the process of seasonality of food. You have access to everything at all times throughout the year. You don't really stop to think about, okay, like lemons are actually a winter uh, fruit. You know, citrus in general is a winter thing. How did they typically preserve lemons? How did they typically preserve oranges? And so um, that's kind of where I try to shed a bit more light on Uh, not necessarily passively eating, but eating with a purpose and eating with an understanding of what you're eating. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, there, as you said, it's like it, when you're when you're based in Dubai or any like uber global city, but in particular yeah. Dubai, because there, you don't really feel the seasons as much. Um, you kind of forget that like food comes from the earth, not the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> It's not endless. It's not like a bottomless pit of like nachos, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if somebody is like, uh, somebody asks you, you at a dinner party, type, okay, Hayes Kitchen. Like, what is, what is Hayes Kitchen? Like, you know, is it a, is it a place? Is it yeah. a, um, you know, a kitchen supply store? Like, what is Hayes Kitchen? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've, um, I've played a lot with like how to define it. And um I constantly keep on coming up with like different ways of explaining it. But I think my latest way of explaining it or my latest version of what Haya's Kitchen is, is that it's an experience. Um, and I created Haya's Kitchen um, with the sole intention of it being a tribute to uh, tetas, to grandmothers, to old traditions that are fading away with time and to obviously Palestine, which is where I'm from. And so everything that I do always has that at the base of it. But what I try to do is always create an experience. So whether it's through my sufra of uh, bringing everyone together around the sufra, and the sufra links back to um, my own sufra and my own family's sufra. So we would always communally come together to eat together, to slow down in the super fast-paced world that we're living in at the moment, and to kind of just share a memory, share a moment, and share food together. And I feel because Dubai is also a very fast-paced city, I wanted to recreate that feeling of um, just inviting people to the sofra to come sit down, get to know each other as well, but also share a meal. And it's so important to share a meal because people tend to passively eat or they eat because they're like, oh, I haven't eaten all day, so I have to eat. And so it kind of brings back the the soul or the nafas that goes into eating uh, together, but eating with a purpose. So define sofra for the people on the call who don't know what that word means. Sofra literally translates into a dinner table. Um, and it's basically a communal uh, dining experience. So people come together. Um, I host it currently at the flip side, which is my husband's space, um, which is a record shop. And we kind of close the shutters. It's 14 seats at the table. Uh, people book spots at the table. And then um, they might know each other. Might, they might not know each other. And I curate um, kind of a full menu with appetizers, a main dish, a dessert uh, that represent the different regions uh, of Palestine 
and they get to eat the dinner, um, which is all basically comfort food with the storytelling element of me explaining why we eat this food, where this food comes from and uh, what it means to me on a personal level. Yeah. Amazing. Like, can you, what, what's the last one? So I went to one, which I was very, very um, thankful that I was able to come, but yeah. um, I mean, last one, what, what was the last one you did? Uh, the last one was actually last month. So I'm trying to do it like once or twice a month. Uh, and I've actually got one coming up um, this weekend. And um, it so, was like, how do you set the menu? Like, Walk me through that process. So I try to factor in, I mean, I think in winter and in summer, there are very clear vegetables or fruit that we kind of incorporate into our food. And it also links back to um, my kind of nostalgic memories of eating, I don't know, watermelon in the summer or eating ice cream in the summer. So I try to also link it back to my uh, personal memories, but I try to think of the seasonality of food. And that's kind of where I start off with, um, where I, I kind of incorporate my appetizers. So like at the last table, uh, because we're in kind of late winter, early spring, we have all of these wild herbs uh, that are growing out um, across the mountains in Palestine, across the Levant as well. And so I uh, wanted to incorporate hindbe and hindbe is basically dandelion greens. And it's a flavor that commercially you wouldn't necessarily have access to. So I try to also showcase flavors that you wouldn't find in a traditional restaurant. There are a few Palestinian restaurants here, but I also feel that a lot of the food has gone commercial. Like people think that msakhan is just msakhan rolls, which is actually not how we typically eat msakhan. It's a whole main dish and it like is coma inducing, you know? So msakhan rolls is far from that. So I try to, I try to kind of educate people about, okay, this is the food that we eat, but it's also um flavors that you might not have access to and the great thing about it is that i've also had palestinians at the table who are like i'm from this city in palestine where you're explaining to us that this dish comes from and they're like we had no idea we, we didn't grow up eating this flavor we had no idea that this flavor was from there yeah. and one of those flavors is um something that i make from Gaza, which is Romania. and it's something that i kind of stumbled across i didn't grow up eating it but I um, kind of came to know about it and I actually introduced my own family to it. And then I started introducing it onto the sufra table. And even people from Gaza were like, I'm from Gaza. I didn't know this is from there. And I'm like, I love that I can share that kind of knowledge with people. Um, so so that's kind of where the, the appetizers come into play. Yeah. And then um, there are also like celebrations across the year of, certain ingredients that we use in our main dishes so like november december time or actually october to december time is when we have the olive harvest season and that's traditionally when msakhan is made so i try to also um incorporate that into my experiences so if i'm doing tables during that period i like to showcase the beauty of how olives are harvested how palestinians celebrate the fact that they have the best olive oil, so that's why they make them sakhan, and that's kind of their proof of them having the best olive oil in the region. Um, in the summer, Wait, hold on, walk me through that. What <laughs> does <laughs> what does msakhan have to do with being a litmus test? How is it a litmus test for so, the best olive oil? I mean, we can we can be semi competitive. No, I know, I know. I'm all for the competition, but I don't know enough about why. <laughs> why? So, basically, so basically, the process is like. The olive harvest season in general is considered a celebration 
overall from A to Z. So it's like from 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 picking the olives off of the trees to actually producing the olive oil. And so then it becomes a competition between households of obviously everyone has their own acres of olive trees. And so they want to kind of prove who has the best olive oil. And msakhan is one of those dishes that you can truly showcase the beauty of the olive oil. And if you use bad olive oil to make msakhan, you can taste bitterness in it. You can taste that something's off. So if you have like silky, smooth, like a bit of like spice to it or a bit of like sharpness to it, you know that it's been made with good quality olive oil. So then basically households would just compete with each other um, to make msakhan and then Obviously, everyone would be like, oh, this is the best msakhan I've had. Oh, this is the best. So then they kind of have this like unwritten title of having like the best olive oil of the season. And then, you know, they kind of carry that title until the next season. Nice. They get the first seat on the bus, all the, all the perks. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. They're like, yeah, you know, like, it's an unwritten kind of title, but we've taken the crown. We have been crowned like the kings and queens of olive oil. So, you know, like, when did you think to yourself, okay, I want to start doing this stuff. Like I care about food. I like food. It's part of my identity. It's part of my heritage. It helps tell the story, but I also want to expose myself to, to all the like of, uh, of the, of the city to come and eat my food and judge me. Like when did you decide, you know, I'm actually going to charge people for food and this <laughs> is going to be part of my life and I'm going to be cooking home cooked food. And yeah. like expose myself to all the criticism. Oh my God. Honestly, the amount of times that I've had like moms at my table, like I'm legit sweating, you know, and I sweat from my palms. So I'm like sitting there like sweating, like, oh my God, like this mom's going to now like critique my food or, you know, and I always look for like kind of confirmation or like approval. Like, do you like it? I need your honest opinion. Like I kind of like, sh- like go back into this, like, kid mode of oh my, like I have like an older person on the table who's like critiquing my food um but to be honest like I I've always loved food so my my memories growing up is not of the stuff that I've seen but it's of what I've eaten and uh you know it's been a running joke with my family all of our lives but we I would never remember like if I traveled to Europe I, I wouldn't be like oh I remember seeing this I'd be like, I remember I had like the best fatta there. I had the best pizza there. I had the whatever. So my memories have always been linked to the food. And um, I'd say, so I kind of started Hayes Kitchen maybe about um, three years ago. Uh, Bad timing, obviously COVID hit, but I started at like close to the end of 2019. And um, I've, the biggest purpose behind why I wanted to do this was because I wanted to connect back to my heritage. So as a Palestinian who's never been to Palestine, um, it's, it kind of felt like I was searching for this, like, understanding of my own identity. And growing up as an expat all of my life, I never really found uh, the kind of the meaning of home or feeling like I belonged in a certain place. And so I meshed really well in the different cities, I made friends, I settled in all of that, but I still felt like there was kind of a missing part to my identity. And so I decided to just kind of uh, absorb uh, all of my energy into understanding my Palestinian heritage, connecting back to my Palestinian heritage. I had also not too long before that lost both of my grandmothers. So I felt like I 
took for granted the time that I had with them. And I didn't really sit down. Like I used to listen to their stories and everything, but I didn't, I kind of took for granted the fact that they would be around for forever, basically. So I was kind of going through, maybe some people would call it a midlife crisis. I don't know, <laughs> but um, I just felt like I wanted to, to do something with a purpose. And um, I had kind of heard about the whole concept of a supper club. People were launching them uh, around the world and it was kind of growing here. And I started it off with family and friends to get some feedback, to get some kind of criticism um, and to kind of be able to grow and develop it in the way that I wanted to. But it, it all came down to the fact that I wanted to share something with soul. And I feel that that kind of shows through what I do. And um, I was ready and open to be critiqued by people or for people to maybe not uh, appreciate it as much at the beginning. I was like, yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, it's tabiq, like it's ma'lube, it's msakhan. Like would people really be willing to pay for this kind of experience? And then over the time, people realized that it wasn't just I'm not just there like as a restaurant to be like, here you go. This is what you guys ordered. It's um, a holistic experience. So it's from me talking about Tatris and the Palestinian ceramics to the food to also the people that my sufras attract. You know, I feel that everyone comes with such an open mind. And the beauty of it is that I have a mix of people. I have the Arabs who uh, are missing home-cooked food, are missing akil, their potatoes and their moms, and they want to feel like they're being fed comfort food. And I've been um, kind of complimented by a few people who have said, like, it reminds me of my mom's ma'lube, or it reminds me of my tetas food, or, and that for me is like the ultimate compliment. Um, or I have the other people who are either trying to understand Palestinian food, or they're trying to um, kind of, get to know more people, they're new in the city, they want to get to new, and you, and it's a setting where it's very intimate, like you're literally sitting in front of someone. If you don't know that person, by the end of the night, you're going to know this person, you can't just look somewhere else. So there are so many different elements to it that I feel now people understand that it's not just, I'm not trying to sell you msakhan, I'm trying to sell you a whole experience. Um, and I put my heart and soul into it. So I feel that people get that impression of it. Yeah, it's interesting, like hearing you talk about this because, like, you were talking at the jump when I incorrectly <laughs> assumed that you were in Jordan for so long. <laughs> and you were, no, 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 that's it. I mean, it's part of the point, right? Um, and you were saying, you know, I, I grew up in all these different places and feel feel at home in all these different places. I've never been to Palestine. Um, I relate to that, obviously. I mean, maybe, maybe not obvious to you, obvious to me that um, that's. Uh, something I relate to, um, which is to say that also is like by some definition of a, uh, of the complicated notion of home, like you don't really feel rooted in many places outside of the sufra, right? Outside of the, the kitchen table, um, you kind of feel unrooted, right? And so in a place like Dubai, where so many people feel unrooted. Yeah that notion and, and that uh, that resource is valuable, right? To be yeah. like, okay, you know, you might not feel at home, but type, let me introduce you to the, to the, the one place that feels grounding for me. Exactly. I mean, I feel yeah. like I kind of 
absorb this like personality like a lot of times I actually feel like I channel like my grandmother's when I'm doing the sofra because it feels like um I'm always like telling people you have to you have to have seconds like you can't have an empty plate you need to like keep eating you need to you need to finish all the food and it's stuff that like my tetas used to say to me so I feel that truly I I absorb all of my um kind of memories or energy or whatever it is personas into what I do with sofra and it does feel like home for me it feels like um when people tell me like it reminds me of home people are actually shocked they're like oh like when was the last time you went to Palestine and I'm like I, ha- I haven't been you know um so they uh, it's amazing to see like people connect to me in that way and I feel like food truly connects people I feel yeah. like even if people walk in like feeling awkward or they don't know anyone, people sometimes ask me like, can I come alone? I'm like hundred percent. You you should actually come alone. I, so, I came alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and everyone just kind of gravitates towards each other because food does connect people. And I feel that in, through any culture, understanding people through food is truly the best way to understand the culture, like beyond politics, beyond like society, beyond any of the hierarchies that are happening, like food truly is a kind of um, like a insight into like what that culture is. And so for me, I do feel um, the most at home at my sofra. I mean, I've, I, I've, I've loved living in different places. I've gotten to see so many different cultures, um, but I do feel grounded when I'm cooking Palestinian food or talking about Palestinian food or, um whatever anything that has to do with food and palestine i'm like Halas, i feel like i'm grounded i feel confident i feel like i'm uh connecting even more to who i am and and i feel like it's important you know at the end of the day like you have to keep telling the stories and the older generations are kind of passing away and they're they're kind of handing over the torch to us so it's also really important to keep talking about the traditions, the heritage, the the stories, the food. There are so many recipes that have also been lost with time because no one wrote them, no one yeah. documented them. So um, I I feel like I'm most passionate when it comes to talking about or doing anything with food and Palestine. Okay, since you mes- mentioned recipes and you mentioned uh, Romani, yes. Um, can I put you on the spot? Can you talk to me about this recipe? Like, yeah. let's say I, I call you, right? I'm like, hey, I'm on my way to the grocery store. Lately, I'm making uh, a romani. Okay? Yeah. Tell me what to order at the grocery store, and then we're going to okay. walk through uh, your suggestion on how to make this. Okay. So romani is, um, it's it's actually a dish that's typically made during Lent, uh, and it actually originates from the cities of Yafa and Lid but it uh, migrated down to Gaza into the Gaza kitchen. Um, so the base of it is basically eggplants, uh, lentils, brown lentils, um, pomegranate molasses. Traditionally, it's made with um, pomegranate juice, sour pomegranate juice, uh, but we don't necessarily have access to that. So pomegranate molasses is basically the alternative to that. Um, and then you basically need uh, spices. So there's um, some cumin in it, of course, salt, pepper. Um, there is also olive oil in it. Um, and there is um, uh, tomatoes. Uh, I put a bit of tomatoes in it just to kind of give it this like creamy texture. 
um, onions. Um, and then towards the end of the cooking process, I add fried garlic. So the fried garlic gives it a completely different flavor. And honestly, the best smell in the world is fried garlic. You know, like it's just, it's the best. Um, so I fry the garlic, I add it to it, but basically it's a, it's a dish that you dump in a pot and kind of forget about. So you dump all of these elements together, uh, and then you let it cook for like an hour and a half and you just keep on stirring it. So it doesn't get caught at the bottom. Um, but it, it transforms from like all of these individual elements to basically the picture that you see on the screen, which is, uh, this like stew kind of texture to it. And some people eat it cold, some people eat it hot, some people eat it with rice. Uh, but the most traditional way is to eat it with tahnis, with bread. And you just top it with olive oil and fresh pomegranate. And um, and it's, it's hearty, has a lot of flavors to it. It's got kind of the earthy flavors of the lentils. Um, and the, the eggplant kind of gets this like smokiness to it because it's cooking with everything. And then you have the tartness from the pomegranate molasses. So, um, I've fallen in love with it. And I think everyone, like everyone that has eaten it are like, like truly they're like, it's such a kind of comfort and filling dish, um, that I think it needs to, um, go global. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Are you still at the um, supermarket? Are you still at the grocery store? I'm still at the grocery store. I'm like, yo, can you just wait for me to get <laughs> yeah, home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. Just give me a few minutes. Hey, I'm telling a story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is actually fun. I want to. I want to do a few more of these. Okay. So, what are some other um, lesser known dishes that are not the ma'lube and the masakhan that you feel like are are integral parts of the Palestinian table? Um, yeah. That you're like, ah, people don't talk about this enough. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of gone down this rabbit hole of um, also like researching flavors or dishes that I didn't grow up eating, like not even my family knows about. And I recently discovered a dish that's called um, kifta bilwara. And uh, I'm obsessed with anything that is wara based. And um, wara is basically vine leaves and it's got this like beautiful lemony flavor to it. But um it's basically kifta patties that are um, rolled, like, so it kind of created into like a burger patty. And kifta, traditional, like, it's got all of the elements to it the parsley, the onions, the minced meat, the spices. And you um, wrap what around it. So you kind of create this like little parcel in the same way that people use like banana leaves with fish. Um, you wrap the kifta in it. And then you get a, like an oven proof uh, dish and then you you kind of slot the kifta one piece of kifta wrapped in water with a slice of potato a slice of tomato and then another kifta potato tomato and you keep going around until you fill it all up and then you top it with um olive oil with lemon with some pomegranate molasses as well um a bit of tomato paste just to kind of add that like saucy element to it uh, a few spices and then you put it into the oven and you let it bake for like an hour and the tomatoes and the potatoes kind of all cook together and the kifta cooks together in the water so when you eat it uh and you eat it in bread so you know like how people sometimes have like a kifta sandwich so you yeah. put the kifta, the kifta in the water in the bread uh, with the tomato, with the potato, and then you can eat it as a sandwich or you can eat it as like a tahmis, uh format. But the the lemony kind of flavor from the wara 
adds a beautiful flavor to the kifta that I honestly don't know why people don't know about this dish. Like it's it's a it's a nice way to use wada yeah. in the non-traditional way. You know, we're all used to having it filled with rice and meat or the vegetarian version. So I love that I discovered um the kifta version because I'm like, it's another way of using wada basically. Um, so when you say discovered, like is is it like you're like you know you typically in 2023 when people talk about discover they're like oh, I was on Spotify and I discovered this amazing <laughs> this ma- amazing you know Finnish death death metal band plays R and B covers and you're like oh yeah. cool awesome well my version is like a little more intense so I so in general wherever I go so I have like a massive like cookbook collection and I regularly like to just like sit and open up my cookbooks and I have quite a few Palestinian cookbooks in my collection and um I also literally go down like the deep dark web uh to find recipes I search in English I search in Arabic I search videos I search like written articles and then I literally just tried to find any sort of documentation of a recipe that is linked back to Palestine that I don't know of and then I immediately challenge myself to try and make it so I um so I sit I usually experiment on my family I'm like guys today we're doing xyz you have to come ready you have to come prepared you're going to be eating this um we're eating kefta wada from the dark yeah, web exactly I'm like whether it's, <laughs> it's bad and and my process is I'm very like kind of scientific in my way. I think a lot of people like Artetas, my mom, they never write measurements for anything, you know? Sure. So it's like just a bit of this, a bit of that. And for me, it's very frustrating because I'm always like, what does a bit mean? You know, like yeah. I need to know. So my process is if I try a new recipe or I'm trying something new, I would uh, write my initial understanding of what my ingredients would be. And then I do it and I try it. And then I'm like, oh, okay. It needed a bit more lemon, needed a little bit more of this. And then I adjust my measurements. And the next time I try it, I do it with a new measurement. And I'm like, okay, cool. It tastes better like this. It tastes better like that. And that's my way of maybe having consistency in the way that I cook. Mm. Um, It doesn't take away like the nafas that I put into my food, but I just feel that it keeps it consistent for me to make sure that everyone gets kind of the same experience of the Romani, of the Kifta and Wada. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay, cool. I want to put you on another um, spot about something else. Yeah. You said your family is from Gaza, right? No, actually. So my family is, uh, so Gaza is actually a, an interesting place because I, I don't feel like it gets a lot of recognition in terms of food. And yeah. And it's beautiful because across Palestine, we each city is kind of known for their own food. And not everyone has like a crossover of yeah. knowing food from different cities. So my family, so Shuti family is from Safad. So we're on the border of Lebanon. And so my dad um, grew up and has like a certain flavor palette towards uh, more like grainy stuff. So in Safad, they eat a lot of burghul. They eat a lot of like um, different kind of like vegetables, like akub, that kind of stuff that maybe central Palestine wasn't as exposed to. Um, so, so Masanderim Jadara is with burghul, whereas like central mm-hmm. Palestine, it's with rice. So, yeah. um, and my mom's side of the family is from Ramallah. So, more central, more um, like maybe louder dishes, more. Probably more prominently known dishes 
as Palestinian dishes, whereas Safad, Safad has a few flavors that I am yet to introduce to my tables. <laughs> okay. I want to ask you yes. about your shatta because <laughs> it was excellent. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> it was so good. So please disperse your secrets. Explain, yes. to, explain to all of us commoners, how yes. do you, what shatta is and how do you make a, a good batch? Okay. So uh, it's funny because shatta is like not something that I ever thought I would become known for, so, but it was actually at my first sufra. Um, I, I had actually experimented with make in making shatta with my mom when I was in Amman and, um, actually, no, they were in Abu Dhabi at the time. And, um, we made shatta and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is incredible. And so I put it on my table and I had a couple of like chili lovers at the table and they're like, oh my God, what is the shatta? And I'm like, really? They're like, you should put it in a jar. You should start selling it. You should do. And I'm like, okay, maybe this could become the thing. Um, so shatta is basically our version of chili paste. Um, it's not so pasty. It's not like harise. Like a lot of people compare it to harise. Um, and in yeah and in Gaza they are actually very known to love their spice so in Gaza they have like super hot chilies like intense chili. like I've had a lot of Ghazawi at my table who have had like endless debates with me about how my shatta needs to be spicier and yeah. then there are other people who can't really handle their spice and like oh my god that's so spicy like I can only have a little bit of it um so in all honesty, like shatta is probably, and I'm going to sound like my mom, because my mom always says, which truly, it's it's true. It's a really easy process. The base of shatta is um, chili peppers, so red chili peppers. Some people do make it with green peppers. Uh, I've tried to make it with green peppers. I actually did it as like a Christmas situation of a red and green shatta. Um, but... Uh, the green kind of tasted different. I feel like the red's better, but you need the long chili peppers. So in our countries, um, you usually find like long red chili peppers, not the little like like little like Thai uh, peppers, not like the like chunky little small like round peppers. You need the long, slim, super bright red peppers. Um, and you basically blitz it all together and you um, kind of create it into this like little paste situation. And then you add salt to it to kind of um, remove a little bit of that moisture from it. So when you add the salt, and when I say salt, it's it's quite a bit of salt. Like you would be surprised as to how, and then you're like, oh, this is gonna be, this is gonna be super salty. It's gonna be a situation, but the salt basically is added to it to remove a bit of that moisture. So it's not like super, super wet. And then you add to it um, tons of olive oil and white vinegar. Uh, mm. So it's literally like a four ingredient um, product. But uh, the beauty of it is the longer you let it sit in the olive oil and the vinegar and the salt like mixture, the better it tastes. So if you make shotta, you shouldn't just eat it immediately. You need to like put it in the jar and let it like ferment for like five to six days before you open it up and start eating it. And then that way yeah. it absorbs all of those flavors. And the beauty of shotta is you don't really have to keep it in the fridge. As long as you keep topping it up with olive oil, you're preserving the top layer. So you can literally keep it out and there's no expiry date to it. Like I know everything has an expiry date, 
but there's nothing in it that goes bad. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. So red peppers, salt, olive oil, and white vinegar. Yes, that's it. Mm. Very, very, very good. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about um, the the dishes. I remember at the the event that I went to, you made a point to be like everything on this table is significant, and the dishes we're um, serving all the food in is also related to Palestine. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah. Um, so like the, the elements that I kind of incorporate into my sofra. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, I try to kind of create this like holistic understanding of, uh, Palestinian food. I mean, I know it's one evening and there are so many different flavors that we have, but I traditionally like to kind of showcase our vegetarian elements in the appetizers because I feel that we're very prominently known to have like meat centric food, which is true. A lot of our food is meat and chicken and, you know, protein based. Um, but I, I think that we have a lot of beautiful flavors um, in our vegetarian kind of um, like palate that doesn't get a lot of um awareness or like isn't isn't kind of like really spotlighted so i wanted to um showcase that you can eat vegetarian food without it being boring and that's again it goes back to the, the complexity of like our flavors and like even with our okra or our bamiya like we add so many different elements to it that the bamiya is like the star of the show but you have so many different things happening with it that you you don't even really think that you're eating a vegetarian dish. Um, and so, and I also like to always play everything in a communal way. So everyone sits down, they get to uh, dig in, they get to try different things. And I like to have different textures too. So something with a crunch, something with ajjane, um, you know, um, my majanat are a tribute back to um, this culture of always having to have Majanat um, in your freezer in the same way that my tetas always had majanat in their freezers just in case someone was going to pop in and say hi so I kind of adopted that um, tradition of making my my own majanat having them at the ready and I like to showcase the different flavors of them so we've got some meat-based ones we've got some vegetarian-based ones some are specific to certain cities in Palestine um, and and then the main is always like a, a celebration. We have certain dishes that we consider our celebration dishes. And there are certain dishes that you're like, no, I'm just going to only make this when I'm just feeling like I want comfort food. And I try to showcase both. Um, but I also try to show flavors that you wouldn't always have access to. So like I sometimes make maftool. Maftool is, I feel, an, a very under um, kind of appreciated dish. Mm. Uh, and it's beautifully made. It's so like kind of comforting in winter time. Uh, the process of making maftool is incredible. So I also like to share the story of how maftool is made. And um, I, I I try to kind of balance out the rest of the meal with the dessert by having some sort of pudding or having now I've kind of, I'm very proud of the process that I've gone through with my Buza Arabiya. So now I'm offering my Buza Arabiya to people at the table at the end with like a ghraibe crumble on top. Um, and mm. I always 
yeah and it's honestly i'm it's yeah well next time you're in town i'm gonna okay you're you wait hold on you're i have too many questions yes i'm ready okay i want to talk about the maftoul in a second but let's start with the buza yes walk me through this what, so, what are you talking about so buza arabia is basically it's a like dairy-based um, buza, and it's got a stretch to it because it's got uh, mystica in it or Arabic gum. So uh, the stretchier it is, uh, I feel the more successful it is. And um, this also goes back to my grandmothers and um, how growing up, they always had, there was there's this brand in Amman called Jabri, and everyone gets this kind of log uh, Arabic buza from them. And it's basically the... Booze on the inside, and then it's like crushed pistachios on the outside. And it's like a staple on any Teta's table. Like if you're having people over, you have Buzarabiya. And so I, I wanted to play with that idea. And I was like, I really am craving Buzarabiya. And um, so I was like, Yalla, there's only one way to do it. I have to try and make it. So I sat and experimented and I tried different versions, churned, not churned for the longest time. I wasn't churning it. And I was like, I wasn't super sure of the texture of it. And recently I kind of got to a process of uh, churning it to the point that it's like creamy. Um, and the base of it is basically the mystica um, there. I put my pistachios on the inside of it. Uh, so I don't leave the pistachios on the outside. I like to have the crunch within the buza. Um, It's dairy based. So it's milk based. Um, and, uh, there's sugar, of course, there's a bit of mazahir. I love having orange blossom. Like I feel like it's incorporated in all of our desserts. Um, and it's basically this like kind of just like velvety smooth, um, Arabic gum flavored ice cream. <laughs> very, very nice. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so to learn something like that, how many, um, I mean, this sounds like a stupid question when I say it out loud, but I'm curious, like how many batches of mediocre booza did you have to make before you're like, I got it? Oh, it, it took a while. I think it's also like to some extent, I'm a stubborn person. So mm. I'm like, no, no, khalas, like it's good. It's good, you know? And, and I would try to convince myself that it's good. But then every time I would serve it, I'm like, oh, no, like I'm not too convinced with the texture. You're and like, there's still some leftover, which means... I know, literally, literally, I was like, man, like, no. And I'm also a perfectionist, so I'm stubborn and, and a perfectionist. So like, it's like a mesh of like two very dangerous uh, kind of characteristics. And I, I literally like have gone through like so many different versions and my family has eaten so many different types of booze on. And like a couple of weeks ago, I was like, guys, I want to I wanna make booze on a stick. So I got silicone molds and then started pouring it into it. And then we had different versions, like one with pistachio on the inside, one with pistachio on the outside, one that was churned, one that wasn't churned. And it was like a whole like science experiment. And um, so it took a while. It took a while to like get to where I am. And people loved the previous versions of it. But Anna, I'm in the back of my head. I'm like, no, it could be better. It could mm. be better. And uh, the last table, I served my latest version of the buza, and they're like, "Hey, you made this?" I'm like, "Yeah, I made it." They're like, "They're like, no." And I also had a mom at the table. She's like, "Hey, you made this?" I'm like, "Yes, Auntie, I made it." And um, 
And they're like, this is incredible. You need to sell this. You need to like go worldwide with it. And I'm like, okay, it looks like I've gotten to a version where I think this is a good version to like keep going with. So this is the, this is the final version that I'm like, okay, I'm happy with it. I'm getting incredible feedback from people. So I'm going to run with this one. You're like, shut the booze and beyond. <laughs> Literally, my mind like spins in so many different ways. I'm like, and then recently people are like, you should like open up a falafel truck. I'm like, guys, like, shui shui. you know, let me, let me figure my life out first and then we'll see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The last one I'm going to get you to do is the maftul. Yes. So what is maftul? How do you make it? What is your amazing uh, uh, story that you're alluding to? Okay, so maftul I think is 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 truly an underappreciated dish, and I think that people in general, like whenever you ask them, and like yeah, I want some sakhan, I want ma'lub, I want whatever. Um, but maftul, so traditionally, it would be made with semolina with flour, um, and it, it's I mean to to some extent it's kind of like a kind of looks like a like a pasta, but it's not. And uh, it's, they have, like, traditionally, Palestinian women would have, like, these, like, massive sieves. It's, like, a round, massive sieve that has, like, like small-ish holes across it. And they would um, mix together the, the flour with the semolina, with all of the other elements um, to kind of get this texture of this, like, powdery, slightly clumpy initial version of maftur and they would keep running it through the sieve like pushing it through with their hands until it comes out as um as little pearls and this is basically the raw version of maftur and uh in lebanon uh, there's mughrabiyah and the mughrabiyah is slightly larger it's like the size of a hummus the maftur is like a super tiny like pearl and that would be the raw version of it and Traditionally, the way that maftul would be cooked is you would cook it in the chicken stock that you've cooked the chicken with, um, but you would have to also put it in kind of like a steamer. So you wouldn't cook it in the same way that you would cook rice. You would have like a like a pot with boiling water underneath it, and then you would put the steamer on top with the maftul to let it expand. And it would expand uh, into a slightly larger pearl, um, that it's, it's it's got this like kind of earthy, grainy flavor to it that I, to some extent, prefer more than frike. Like I know frike has gotten like global recognition in salads, in frike and chicken with meat, whatever. But maftul, um, I feel has a kind of a more comforting flavor to it. And the chicken is cooked with, I mean, I feel across our food, we have a lot of flavors that are similar, like in terms of the spices. But maftul is one of those flavors that has a completely different spice palette to it. So one of the core spices in maftul is karawiya or caraway. And the caraway is one of the most prominent flavors that you can taste in maftul. And um, I love that because I love having a different flavor palette to that dish. I feel like it's completely different to the rest of the food that we eat. And the way that you eat it is you have the maftul that's cooked um, and you put the chicken, uh, which 
it has no skin, but it's got the bone on it, but it's gotten a darker um, color to it because it's been cooked with all of the spices to create that stock. So it kind of darkens the, the color of the chicken. And then you um, put um, sliced onions and chickpeas with the maftool to let it cook all together. And then you pour the chicken broth on top of it. So it's kind of like a soup, but it's not a soup. And it's so rare that you would have access to a dish like that. You know, even growing up for us, we didn't regularly eat maftool. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I eat maftool now, I'm like, why don't we eat this more often? Like, it's just such a hearty, comforting dish. And it would be eaten in winter because it's kind of like soup based. Um, and you don't need to accompany it with anything. Like you can literally just eat it and it's just a wholesome dish on its own. Um, so I feel that maftool needs to get a lot more recognition as a, as a dish that people choose. That's amazing. That's fun. Okay. Before we move on to the quick Q and a, uh, Hey, I just want to ask you everything you're talking about sounds amazing. Okay. (laughs) What about your job sucks? What about running this Hayes Kitchen is so hard that you have to be like, oh, this is the price of doing business. Yeah. Uh, There's a price of doing what I love, but this, this part is awful. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, like it all sounds like awesome. And, and when people get to like, see, because people come like when everything is set up, so they don't really see like the behind the scenes of things. Um, but for me, I think my biggest struggle is, uh, running it on my own. So uh, when people sometimes message me, they're like, oh, um, can the person in charge um, of, I don't know, like events or catering or whatever, get in touch with me? I'm like, there's no person. It's me. Like, there is no team behind Haya's Kitchen. It's just me running the show. And I do have part timers that help me out. I do have support. But I mean, it is me. So I'm the designer. I'm the, I produce the food. I um, write up the menus. I run my socials. I um, have to interact and manage all the different like um, opportunities that I get. I am the driver. I am the atal. I take the stuff into my trolley. I have an incredible trolley that I bought in COVID uh, when we had to do grocery shopping and um it's literally been my best investment. I literally load up everything into it. And I'm always ca- carrying this trolley left, right, and center, loading the car, unloading the car. So it's a lot of physical work, you know? And sometimes I'm like, I left my corporate job to be al atal with tabakh and, you know, and... Yeah, But so that part isn't fun, you know? Like yeah. it's it's a lot of work that goes into it. And uh, I pour my heart and soul into it. You know, I I run everything. Like, I don't outsource anything. I don't trust anyone to do anything um, with the same intention that I would. So I'm always like, I run everything in Haya's Kitchen. And um, I know it sounds like it's like a big team of like Haya's Kitchen, but no, it's just me. And, yeah. but at the end of the day, like, even if I get to whatever, a sofra, I've set up, we're setting up a tables, I'm like panicking, running around. Oh my God, we're running late. Um, when I just hear people tell me, oh, like it was comfort food for us. It took us back home. That for me is like, خلاص, it, it kind of justifies why I'm doing what I'm doing. But in the moment of me preparing, I'm like, oh, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What, what yeah. did I decide to do? I chose to get into like, 
a super tough industry. Like food is not an easy industry to be in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I find, I find like whatever happens and the, the compliments that I get or the feedback that I get from people kind of pushes me forward. So um, it's working for now. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta work on your, uh, your impression game because yeah. it's like, Oh, let me hand you to the social media person. I know, right? <laughs> Hello. Can you, can you hold for a second? And then I'm can like, you hold for a second? <laughs> Hello, I'm the business manager at the <laughs> kitchen. Exactly. I, honestly, I considered it before. I was like, should I say, like, should I create like different like email aliases where it's like different people handling different things? And I'm like, Khalas, it's Haya. I'm Haya. It's all about Haya, you know, and, and Haya runs everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do the, let's do the quick Q&A and then we're going to wrap up. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you reading or watching these days? Okay. Um, I'm like completely off topic, but I'm really into crime. Um, so, uh, so I watch a lot of the like, crime documentaries. Uh, I actually just recently wrapped up, uh, the flight attendant. Okay. It's a very good show. Um, and I think it's HBO. Uh, but I, I'm also obsessed with Disney. So I have always grown up um, loving animation. I actually wanted to work in animation as a kid. So, um, whenever I feel like I want to get into a better mood or a better, uh, feeling, I watch one of my favorite Disney movies, which is the little mermaid. Okay. Let's, let's do this right now. Ready? Mount yeah. Rush, Mount Rushmore of Disney movies. So little mermaids on there. What else? Yeah. Uh, Little Mermaid. Uh, I love obviously, um, uh, Sleeping Beauty. I love Beauty and the Beast. Um, I, I do appreciate Fantasia to some extent. Wow. Uh, these are, I was not expecting for you to go to the 1920s, 30s, 40s. And I know. Interesting. Okay. I know. Uh, I love Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, these are deep cuts. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like deep, like Disney. I went to Disneyland and I didn't want to leave. I was like the guys, I have found my purpose in life. I'm going to say, Yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame is a. It's dark. It's dark, but it's also not <laughs> a, a a fan favorite. So it's amazing. No, I mean, the music's I... great. Don't get me wrong. The music is really, really good. It is, yeah. Okay, very it's cool. It's not considered a classic. It's not considered a classic, but it does um, tell me about your personality. Okay. Yeah. But like, it's also like very, like, kind of, you know, opposite ends. Like, I like crime, but I also love Disney, you know? So ah. it's like. Extreme. Little Mermaid, Hunchback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Ooh. Um, I mean, honestly, if I get the chance, I, I would love to go back to uh, spending a day with... Uh, can I choose both of my tetas? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I took for granted uh, the time that I had with them. Um, there is also my one of my uh, dad's aunts who he swears was like the best cook ever. Um, and there are so many lost recipes that, that died with her. So I would say my, my grandmother's and also my, my dad's aunt. Hey, what is your guilty pleasure midnight food choice? Oh my God. Um, I regularly just snack on bread, you know? So especially if I have like fresh bread. So my biggest weakness in life is going into like a makhbaz and having like freshly baked 
bread. So mm. if I literally just have like bread lying around, I would just eat it. Like like mm. carbs is my is my life. Okay. And last one, <laughs> what dish reminds you most of home? Um I would say kusanwara. Kusanwara is um one of those dishes that now in retrospect I asked for so many times like from my mom from my tetas like what do you want to eat and my kusanwara and um it's just this comfort dish and now that i know what the process is of making or rolling wara i see how much love goes into it so i feel like kusanwara is literally the definition of a dish that has a lot of labor and love put into it so i would say it reminds me the most of home so oh, nice yeah um Hey, you're so much fun to talk to. Thanks for sharing sharing your time and all of your recipes and your secrets with us. Yeah. Um, it's so nice to have you on the series. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I honestly had an awesome time and uh, I'll see you in Dubai soon or if I come to Beirut. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com/support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.